So we're going to look tonight at chapter 22, uh, God willing, of uh, Revelation. Um, but I promised, didn't I, that we would uh, begin our class this week by trying to do a recap of uh, the chapters up to now. And I hope that some of you have taken the time to try to make your notes, to try to recall those chapters and, and uh, keep a mental record of them. So we'll do that as soon as we've uh, started our class with a prayer. So perhaps just bow your heads. Almighty Lord God, we praise your name. We thank you for all your goodness and kindness to us. We're grateful for the blessing of technology that despite the challenges of having to be isolated at this time, we are able to connect together. We're able to open up your word together to study it more carefully. We're conscious that this book is a really special book in the Bible, that there's a blessing attached to those who will try to read this and understand it and try to live the message of this book. So help us as we look now at this chapter tonight to reflect on these things and to be more determined in the days that we're given until the Lord Jesus comes to serve and please you. So we put our class into your hands. We ask that you'll be with us and bless us in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so uh, shall I just show you who's here? Just, um, but they're never grateful, but I'm going to do it anyway. Here's uh, Beck and Lil. And um, I'm sure that Maddie will make an appearance shortly, the dog. Um, but uh, as we're going to discover shortly, she's, uh, well, she's not going to be in this age because dogs don't go in. To the, uh, to, to the New Jerusalem. So here we go. Rev 22. See if you can recall um, right from the beginning. So Revelation chapter 1. Let me ask the guys in here. Revelation 1. Multitudinous Christ. So Revelation 1. Just our summary. There's so many wonderful things in there. But the, 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 we're given the picture, aren't we, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints. The multitudinous Christ, we call it. Chapters 2 and 3. The letters to the Ecclesias. The letters to the Ecclesias. Uh, can you do those letters for us? Ephesus. Ephesus. Smyrna. Smyrna. Pergamos. Pergamos. Thyatira. Thyatira. Sardis. Sardis. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Laodicea. And Laodicea. Okay. Which was the good Ecclesia? So actually, lots of them were good, but you're, you had lots of good bits. But Lil, you're right. The one that had nothing bad said about it was the uh, Philadelphian Ecclesia. That's lovely, isn't it? Because it means uh, br brotherly love, doesn't it? So there's something lovely about that. Which Ecclesia was lukewarm? Laodicea. Laodicea. Good stuff. Good Lil. Okay, come to chapter four. What do we? What's the vision we're given? So key words through chapter 4. If you haven't done it, you need to do it. You need to highlight the word throne uh, all the way through the chapter. So chapter 4 is the vision of the throne. And that vision goes on in chapter 5. And what do we see in the middle of the throne? The lamb. The lamb. Uh, and we see another animal too. I'll give you a clue. The lion. The lion. Yeah, good acting, right? So uh, you see the lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And, of course, we see the Lamb. And then you go to history again in chapter 6. And what are we shown? Four horses. The four horses of the apocalypse. And what th those four horses are depicting which empire? Roman. The Roman Empire. So can you remember the colours of the horses? White. White, symbolising 
So that peaceful time, uh, the, the historian Gibbon, Edward Gibbon, says that actually if you were going to pick any time to live in the history of the world, you'd pick that time period. It was an extraordinary period of prosperity and peace uh, to live within the Roman Empire. So the white horse, then the red, red horse, red talking about death and, blood. death and bloodshed, yeah? Then the black horse, what was that about? Famine. Famine, yeah. And then after that, we have a horse that's described in most of our versions as a pale horse. But really, that, that Greek word is what, what word? Chloros. Chloros. Actually, we get our word chlorine, don't we? If you take chlorine, you die. You have too much chlorine. So chloros speaks to us about death. death. Yeah. And then at the end of chapter six, we've got this picture that emerges that initially seems marvellous. We've got this beautiful picture that almost seems kingdom like, because who was it that changed pagan Rome to Christian Rome? Constantine. Constantine. So Constantine comes along and he says, you know what, if I really want to get this empire all under me, We've got to get rid of this idea of pagans and we've got to Christianize the Roman system. And so that's what he did. And as a result, the Christians within the empire initially are thinking, this is marvellous. Isn't this wonderful? We, we can actually openly be Christian um, within the empire. And it felt almost like the kingdom to them. But of course, in reality, before long, Constantine got it badly wrong. And he, amongst other things, push the doctrine of the Trinity, which uh, we obviously understand to be entirely wrong and made it a nightmare for the true Christians under the Roman system. Okay, so Ro Revelation chapter 7, what's that about? Another vision of the kingdom is that the 144,000, we see the 12 tribes of Israel, the hope of Israel is what our hope is. Uh, we see it multiplied up, talking to us about the uh, the great blessing that comes for all people under the hope of Israel. Revelation chapter 8, back to history. And if you think about it, chapter 6 was about Rome. W which powers broke up the Roman Empire? Barbarians. The barbarians. So chapter 8 is about the barbarian hordes that came sweeping in. And we're told particularly about four. Can you remember any of those? Oduasa. Okay, Oduasa. He's actually the last of the four. Uh, Alaric. Alaric the Goth, yeah. Attila the Hun. Attila the Hun. Uh, the Vandal, yeah. yeah. So, so, so you've got those three. Then the last is Oduasa. And that's really important. All of us should have a note at the end of Revelation chapter 8 that says the year AD 476, because that's the year that Odoacer, the barbarian, went into Rome and Rome fell. And so Revelation 8 deals with the collapse of Western Rome. And you say, what do you mean Western Rome? Think about Nebuchadnezzar's image, that Sunday school story that all of us know, where during the period of Rome, the iron legs, there are two legs, and that's because the Roman Empire split into two. And you had Western Rome, which is where Rome actually was, and you had Eastern Rome, and the capital of Eastern Rome was which city? Constantinople, so uh, named after Constantine. So that's modern day, which city in Turkey? Istanbul. Istanbul. 
right? So Constantinople was the capital of the eastern leg of Rome. It was the dragon side, uh, the political Rome that was building in the east. And Constantinople lasted far longer. It was called the Second Rome, much, much longer than Rome um, that fell in 476. So what year did Constantinople fall? These guys are trying to get their brains on this as they're writing their own notes. Well, it was the year 1453. Now, that is such an important date to have. And you have that at the end of Revelation 9. So, Revelation 9, we see the rise of the Ottoman Turks after the Saracens. And the Ottoman Turks come in and they break down with their gunpowder, which is described for us in Revelation 9 rather marvellously, they break down the, uh, the walls of Constantinople and it falls and the Ottoman Turk moves in to that place. And so Rome now has fallen in the year 1453. Constantinople falls. Okay, so that's the end of chapter 9. Chapter 10, what have we got? Rainbow angel. Beautiful vision, small chapter of the rainbowed angel. That's the saints going on the march. Uh, and it's after the judgment at Sinai that we go out and the battles commence as we move up to save uh, the Jewish people who are surrounded by Gog um, and his confederate army surrounding Jerusalem. Revelation 11. The two witnesses. And those two witnesses were those people who tried to hold on to Bible truths and to uh, the gospel message, even when the powerful Roman Catholic system was treading on them and not wanting believers to open their Bibles. It was banned. People weren't allowed to have their Bibles. And so the witnesses are those who were trying to hold on to it during that time. And it takes us right the way through, halfway through chapter 11, to which major event? The French Revolution. So we see an earthquake in chapter uh, 11, which is one of the great earthquakes of Revelation. It's the French Revolution. And then the second half of chapter 11 is the middle of the whole of the book of Revelation, which is a beautiful picture of the kingdom age with the saints in it. Chapter 12, we're now going to get some more information about the character who we saw at the end of chapter 6. So when people thought uh, that the kingdom had come, and that uh, pagan Rome had changed to being Christian. Who was the guy that, that, that led that? It was Constantine. And so chapter 12 gives us more detail about Constantine. And we see the dragon power emerge within the east of Constantinople. Okay, chapter 13. Beast of the sea and the earth. The beast of the sea, the beast of the earth, and the image of the beast. The beast of the sea is called that because it comes out of the Mediterranean, uh, out of the sea there. Uh, and so uh, that's why it's called the beast of the sea. And that's the, 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 the vision that was built from Daniel chapter 7 of the great and terrible beast that's trodden um, over the, the, the saints. The beast of the earth 
The Beast of the Earth begins in the year around 800 with Charlemagne, and it's called the Holy Roman Empire. The Beast of the Earth is a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. And the lamb, you remember, has two horns, the Holy Roman Empire. And then we have the picture of the image of the beast um, towards the end of chapter 13, which is talking to us about the papal states emerging uh, within Italy. Okay, chapter 14, what's the picture? The lamb. The lamb. And the harvest. Two harvests. And, and the two harvests. Super, so that's a good summary. So the lamb and those who follow the lamb. And then in um, the second half of chapter 14, we see this beautiful kingdom picture and we see two major battles the battle that uh, is depicted as the grain harvest and so that we understand is the battle of armageddon a heap of sheaves is what armageddon means in a valley of threshing so that we the first battle that needs to be won is the or the major battle anyway is the battle of armageddon and then the second the the treading of the wine press, the vine harvest, is talking about the destruction of which system? Rome. Rome. Well done. Okay, chapter 15. What have we got? History or a vision? A vision. A vision? And what's the vision? The saints in the kingdom. The saints in the kingdom. What are saints standing on? Yeah. Okay, the saints are standing on the sea. That's right. A sea of glass, excellent. A sea of glass. It's stilled because we're able to stand upon the nations. Okay, chapter 16. Major event running through chapter 16. French Revolution. The French Revolution. And you remember that I was taking from chapter 11. Chapter 11, halfway through, we learn about the great earthquake. And then chapter 16 gives the most incredible detail and talks to us about how that earthquake leads on to the next major earthquake, which will be the Millennium Period. And it takes us to Armageddon. Okay, chapter 17. The woman riding the beast. The woman riding the beast. Who's the woman? The Rome. Rome, the apostate church of Rome. Who's the beast? Europe. Europe, so the European system. So we're expecting to see the Roman Catholic system wanting to ride Europe. And we're seeing much of that in the world today, but it will happen even more so when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And of course, the Roman Catholic system is going to call out Jesus and say, that man that's gone to save the Jews, he's the Antichrist. And they're teaching it today. And so many, of course, across the world, and particularly in Europe, will quickly buy that. And they will allow the Roman system to ride them. Okay, chapter 18. What do we see? The fall of Babylon. The fall of Babylon. And so the call goes up from chapter 18. Come out of her, my people. The faithful need to come out of Babylon. Chapter 19. The marriage of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb. A beautiful picture. And then we see the the white horse of the Lord Jesus Christ going out to deal with the Roman system and we see the beast and the false prophet totally destroyed. The, the, the beast and the rider the, of chapter 17 are completely destroyed. So chapter 20 then gives us which picture? 
millennium. The millennium. It gives us the most beautiful picture of the millennium period. Chapter 21. We need to split this in two. I don't know if we came up with a title last week. Or... So chapter 21, the first eight verses are post-millennium. Perhaps our title for verses 1 to 8 would be when God is all in all. That lovely phrase from 1 Corinthians 15. But then from verse 9 through to the end of the chapter, we actually are given more detail about the millennium, and particularly the temple uh, and, and the saints uh, during the kingdom age. So our final chapter is chapter 22, and that's the chapter that we'd like to study together tonight. So let's um, read it. I'll ask Beck and Lil to help me with reading it. We'll read the whole chapter, and then we'll, um, we'll start to look at the detail of it. So Revelation 22. I suggest that you perhaps follow along or read it in your homes. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no, no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed, me that, who showed them to me. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. And he said unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Let the evil doers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. And behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of, the, to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. For without are dogs, and sorcerers, and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the Ecclesias. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues which are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. 
Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Okay, so we're given this beautiful picture, aren't we, in verse 1, of a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, this is both a literal and a symbolic picture. We know that literally it happens um, because of the Old Testament pictures given to us. Should we just quickly keep a marker, obviously, this is our base chapter, but come back to Zechariah. And you need to make a note of a couple of references next to Revelation 22, verse 1. But in Zechariah 14, we read in verse 8, It shall come to pass in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half them toward the former sea and half toward the hinder sea, the former being the eastern sea, the, uh, the hinder being the western sea. So the western sea being the Mediterranean, the eastern sea being the Dead Sea, which of course is going to be made alive because of this water of life coming out of it. So the allegory, which is the Jordan that flows down to the Dead Sea, is going to change, isn't it? Because Jerusalem is going to be elevated and the water of life is going to come sweeping down into the Dead Sea. And that part of the world is going to be completely changed. And the allegory that at the moment speaks to us of the Jordan taking us down to to, to death, which is what happens uh, for all of us at the moment, is going to completely change. Just flick back to chapter 13 and verse 1. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So there's something about this water that's going to deal with the problem of sin. It's going to deal with the problem of uncleanness. So this is uh, a wonderful um, uh, water that is coming through from New Jerusalem. Excuse the ding there. An email just came through. I've turned the volume off on my computer. Now, this is picked up for us uh, rather wonderfully in Ezekiel. So you need to come back to Ezekiel chapter 47. So hopefully next to Revelation 22 and verse 1, you've made a note of Zechariah 13, 1, Zechariah 14, verse 8. But the key chapter to us understanding this vision is Ezekiel 47, where you remember that from Ezekiel 40, we looked at it last week as well, it's the key chapter to us understanding chapter 21. But here 47 is dealing with the river, but from Ezekiel 40, we've had this vision of the temple, a literal temple, during the millennium period. So 47 now in verse 7, Ezekiel, or verse 6, he, we read, Son of man, have you seen this? And he brought me and caused me to return to the bank of the river. Now when I returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. So I want you to note that, that there are very many trees here. Then said he to me, these waters issue out toward the east country, go down to the desert and go to the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that every, everything that lives, which moves whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed, and everything that shall live whithersoever the river comes. So this beautiful picture 
of life teeming within this river that the waters are flowing out from Jerusalem. Now, where have you come across before this phrase, a very great multitude of fish? A great multitude of fish. <coughs> and I'm sure that in your homes, many of you are calling out now to the screen, you're saying, when Jesus caught the big, the, the, the multitude of fish. So I want you to keep a marker. You've already got a marker in Revelation 22. You, you need to keep a marker in Ezekiel 47, but just re be reminded of what we see in John 21. Because in John 21, the Lord Jesus asked the disciples to be fishers, or they are fishers, aren't they? And of course, when they cast out their net, verse 6 of John 21, we're told they cast therefore and they weren't able to draw it for the multitude of fish. Now what were these fish like? Verse 11. The net was full of great fishes. So look, when in Ezekiel 47 and verse 9 we read of a very great multitude of fish, it's language that we see in John 21 where the fishermen, the disciples, caught a great multitude of fish. Now, this, uh, I think, is really interesting. These great fish, what do they speak to us of? Well, the disciples, the fishermen, speak to us about the work of preaching, don't they? Of having to cast out the net to try to uh, bring others to a knowledge of the truth. The net is the gospel message, which is able to to pull them in. So the, the fish are talking of individuals. Now I think there's something really special about these phrases, this idea of these fish. And for us to really appreciate it, we need to just do a little bit of digging. I'd first like you to go to Ephesians chapter 3 where we read about a mystery. Ephesians chapter 3, we learn about a mystery, but really it's not that big a mystery, because we're told what it is. And the mystery is, verse 6, that the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, should be fellow heirs. So look, just go back to verse 3. Paul says, How by revelation he made known to me the mystery. And the mystery is that the Gentiles become part of the promises. So look, verse 9. To make all men see, both Jew and Gentile, what is the fellowship of the mystery, which, Ephesians 3, verse 9, from the beginning of the world, has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. So right at the very beginning, the mystery was hidden that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. What does this mean? Well, come on, we've got to go back to the beginning. Will you come back to Genesis chapter 1? Come back to Genesis 1. 
where we read about the creatures that God made having to multiply after their kind. But a special phrase is used of man. Verse 28, we read that man had to be fruitful and multiply. So man had to be fruitful and multiply. But who else is that phrase used of? It's used, have a look, verse 22. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas. So the fish, the things of the seas had to be fruitful and multiply. And most of you must be thinking, Pete, what are you talking about here? I want you to come to Genesis now, 48. So we're looking for a mystery that was hidden in creation to do with the blessings of the Gentiles. That they also, well, for all people, could be part of the covenant promises. So Genesis 48, look what we read that Jacob says to Joseph. He said, verse 3, Behold, I make thee fruitful and multiply thee. I will make of thee a multitude of people, and I'll give this land, Israel, to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. So something special is taking place here, where from the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the call comes to be fruitful and multiply. And so now Jacob, who's an old man, takes Joseph's sons. And we read, look, verse 15. He blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long to this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, that's Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, let my name, the name of God, be named on them. That's important for us later. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude. Now look in your margin at the word grow. If you've got an authorised version margin, what does it say? You've got a margin there? As fishes do increase. As fishes do increase. So the blessing from the hope of Israel, Jacob, Israel, is that they would grow as fishes do increase into a multitude. Now here's the thing that's amazing. Can you remember in John 21, I don't think I told you, but many of you will know how many great fish they pulled onto the land 153 153 153 what does that mean what's 153 are you in genesis 48 and verse 16 let them grow let them as fishes do increase into a multitude the hebrew word for the word multitude, guess how many times it's used? 153. So the blessing 
of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the blessing hidden in creation, shown to us in the fishes that they might multiply, be fruitful and multiply, is the blessing that all people, Jew and Gentile, can share in the covenant promises. So now I'll come back to Ezekiel 47. And we understand that in the kingdom age, the blessings are still going to go out to the Gentiles. That a very great multitude of fish will be in these waters. And verse 10, what else do we read? It shall come to pass that fishers shall stand on the riverbank from Engede even to Englein. They shall be a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds. That's what we see in Genesis 1, isn't it? As the fish of the great sea, exceeding many. So isn't it lovely that the job then of the saints in the kingdom age will be as fishermen. Who's going to be sitting on the 12 tribes, uh, on the thrones of the 12 tribes? The 12 disciples, many of whom are fishermen. There are seven of them in John 21. And they'll be helping the saints in the, the great job still of fishing, in teaching the world, preaching to the world about the call of the gospel message. And so that's the picture shown to us in Ezekiel 47. Now, when we go on in verse 12, we read that by the river on the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat. You know, obviously that means food, doesn't it? Whose leaves shall not weigh, neither, uh, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his month. So each month, new fruit will come forth. This won't be like uh, fruit trees today, which they, they might yield fruit periodically. Each month, new fruit will come. Because their waters, uh, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for food, and the leaf thereof for medicine. That word medicine is the only time it's used in the whole of the Bible. And if you again look in your margin, you see it says for bruises and sores. Now you think of the problem of the curse, the bruise of the curse. It's going to be dealt with by the the leaves of the tree as they're given for the healing of the nations and so that literal picture shown to us in ezekiel 47 is the great building block for the symbols we see back in revelation 22 so come back to revelation 22 where we see this lovely picture of the pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of the street, verse 2, that word street um, doesn't literally mean street. There won't be streets in New Jerusalem. Actually, uh, if you look it up, Strong says it can be an open square uh, or, or a wide place. So this is in the middle of the, 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 the city of Jerusalem, last week in chapter 21, we, talked, or we saw a wall around the, the city. So in the middle of the, the, the street, or in the middle of the square, on either side of the river, there were the tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits, and yielded their fruit every, every month. And it says the tree of life, there will be the tree of life, but these are trees of life, that's what they are. This is the woodland that we see in Ezekiel 47. 
It yielded her fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It's the picture, isn't it? This beautiful picture of the water going out. That water is the water of the word. Uh, a good reference um, to, to have would be in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 16 I've made a note of. Ephesians 5, 16, where we see the water of the word. And you tie that together with Isaiah 2, where we read about the word of the Lord going out from Mount Zion, going out from Jerusalem. That's the picture here. And it's that word that's able to cleanse the, the nations. It's not, as it were, the water that can cleanse them. It's the word. There is real water there, but it's the word that's going to cleanse the nations. And so we read verse 3, there shall be no more curse. So what does that mean? Because you could argue, well, there is a curse. The, 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 this is the millennium period. We know that sin and death is still there. But this is for those, verse, carry on verse 3, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. This is in the city, in New Jerusalem. And the curse won't be there. And his servant shall serve him. And they shall see his face. And his name shall be in their foreheads. This is a great theme uh, of Revelation. We see it in chapter 7 and in chapter 14. We ought to make some notes here. So his name shall be on their foreheads. Let's just get ourselves a reference. I'll turn it up and you can write it in. So chapter 14 and verse 1. The father's name is written on the foreheads of the 144,000. Give you another reference. Chapter 7 and verse 3. We see that the, that the saints are not touched for a while until God has sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And the picture of the sealing of the foreheads goes right back to Ezekiel chapter 9. So come on, let's go and have a look there. Let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 9. And many of you all know that this picture of it in Ezekiel 9 is of Jerusalem, but sadly, the city is about to be destroyed. Because Israel was so unfaithful to God, God did as he told them he would do in order to teach them. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians who came sweeping in from the north. And so it's a symbolic picture in Ezekiel 9. We see uh, the, the six men coming in, verse 2, from the way of the higher gate, which lies towards the north of the city. And we see a picture, verse 3, of the glory of God leaving the city of Jerusalem. And it won't return until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. But what is it that um, we see? Verse 4, the Lord said to him, so said to uh, the, the angel who's fulfilling this work, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, set a mark on the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abomination that's done in the midst of it. Now I want you to note this, particularly young people who this class has been for. So verse 5, to the others, he said in my hearing, go after him to the city, smite, let, your eye, let not your eyes spare, neither have you pity, slay utterly, old 
and young, both maids and little children and women. But don't come near any man on whom is the mark. And so there's a great lesson for us, isn't there? That we've got to have the mark of God. We've got to have the name of Yahweh written in our foreheads. Now, not literally. We don't sort of need to write Yahweh on our foreheads or God on our foreheads. That would be a ridiculous thing to do. It's a symbol, isn't it? It's about our thinking. That's where you do your thinking. What are you thinking about? Are we thinking about the name of Yahweh? Are we thinking about that name? I will be who I will be and his plan and purpose. Because if we're not, Ezekiel 9 and verse 6 is frightening. Slay utterly, old and young. doesn't matter who you are. And so young people, let's really think carefully on these things. What's written on our foreheads? Just go back to Revelation. And do you remember who was in the kingdom age in chapter 20? It was those, the end of verse 4, who had not received the mark of the beast on their foreheads. So you've got a choice. It's a binary choice. Two options. One is you get the thinking of the name of God in your forehead. The second is that you allow your forehead to be thinking about the beast system. You know what happens to the beasts? The beasts perish. So let's make sure that we're with those whose name are written in the book of life because we have allowed the name of the Father, the name of Yahweh, to be on our foreheads. So chapter 22, verse 5. There shall be no light there, and they, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So the glory of God will be seen through the light of the saints. That word candle in verse 5, um, I'm sure I'll say this wrong, it's the Greek word luknos, spelt in the English translation L-U-C-H-N-O-S, luknos. And it's actually depicting an oil lamp, which is just interesting, isn't it? Because they won't need an oil lamp anymore. The, the, the light, the oil of God's word will be there and it will be in us. And when you think about that with things like the, 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 uh, the story Jesus told, the parable Jesus told about the wise and the foolish virgins who had to have oil in their lamp. Now is the time we've got to have the oil in our lamps. In the kingdom age, we'll be totally transformed. We'll be full of that oil. We will be that light. God will be in us giving that light. And there'll be no, lead, no longer any need for us to be having oil in our lamps, as it were. So it's today that we fill our lamps with oil. That's why we're doing these classes. That's why we're sat listening, isn't it? And trying to work this out together. Because we understand that the oil is the oil of the word, which has got to fill us up, that we might be a light to the world. Verse 6. He said to me, 
These sayings are faithful and true. We've come across that phrase, haven't we, on a couple of times in the book. We, we looked at it uh, last week, particularly in chapter 21 and verse... Let me find it for us. Uh, verse 5, the end of verse 5. True and faithful. So these sayings are faithful and true. We won't look at that phrase again. And the Lord God of the holy prophet sent his angel to show his servants the things which must surely come to pass. So this is a slightly odd phrase, isn't it? The Lord God of the holy prophet sent his angel. That, that phrase is better translated. The revised version says, the Lord God of the spirits of the prophet sent his angel to show his servants. So the spirit of the prophets that any believer, particularly these in the first century, could see, they would understand that what God had shown those prophets had come to pass. And so that that same spirit is now being put into the book of Revelation. So they could be certain that what was being written in that book, in the book of Revelation, was going to come to pass. And if they needed to test it, go and have a look at the prophets. So they could go and look at Micah that talked about the fact that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Did it happen? It happened. They could look at Isaiah that talked about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ would be killed in the most terrible circumstances. But uh, he would, um, though he would die with wicked men, the, the, the two thieves um, alongside him, he would be buried with the rich. Joseph of Arimathea gave him his tomb, that rich man. Or the Psalms, something like Psalm 22, which would talk about the Lord Jesus being crucified. And numerous other prophecies, hundreds and thousands of them, that they could see the spirit of the prophets must have been given to those men that they could tell the future. That same spirit is in this book that he might show to his servants the things which must shortly be done or come to pass. It's going to be unfolding before them in history. Verse 7, Behold, I come quickly. That phrase is used again and again in the book of Revelation. Um, it's one to highlight through the book. We haven't got the time to pick them out. Uh, but six times that Greek word quickly is being used in the book. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. So that phrase is picked up, isn't it, from chapter 1, where in verse 3, we were told, Blessed is he that reads, they that hear the words of this book, and keep the things which are written. You've got to read, you've got to hear, and you've got to keep it. So we're reading it, we're hearing it, We've got to make sure we're keeping it. We've got to make sure we're living the sayings of this book. In Revelation 22 and verse 7, well, it's presumed we've already read it. We've already heard about it. What have we got to do? We're reminded we've got to keep it. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings, the prophecy of this book. Let's make sure that we are doing our best to keep them and also to guard them ourselves to watch over, to make sure that this um, book is, is preserved and the correct understanding of it is preserved through generations. Okay, verse 8. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I'd heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then he said to me, See thou do it not. I'm thy fellow servant 
and of thy brethren the prophets and of them which keep the sayings of this book worship God key principle uh, a good reference to have in your, in your margin there is Colossians 2 and 8 verse 18 let me just read that to you Colossians 2 verse 18 says this let no man beguile you of your reward a, volu uh, a voluntary humility in worshiping of angels intruding into these things which he hath not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding the head of him which all the um, all the body by joints and bands having nourishment minister knit together increaseth with the increase of god we shouldn't be beguiled we shouldn't be robbed of our reward by thinking that we should be worshipping angels. The only thing we should be worshipping is God, or the only person we should be worshipping uh, is the Lord God Almighty. Okay, verse 10. He said to me, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now, some of you will remember, but in chapter 10, when the vision was given of the rainbowed angel, the call came that they should seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered. So chapter 10 and verse 4, we're not told all the detail about how the rainbowed angel will conquer the lands as it moves up to Jerusalem. So those things are sealed up. But in 22 and verse 10, the sayings of the prophecy of this book should not be sealed up. They need to be explained and expounded to people. We should try to work this out and understand it. We, we, we can't get a perfect grasp of what the rainbow angel will do. It's been sealed up. But we can grasp from the time of the first century through to today and beyond into the millennium and beyond the millennium period, the sayings of this book because it's not sealed. It's been given to us. So we read verse 11. He that is unjust. Now we notice four types of people here. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that's filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. So what have we got? We've got four types of people, haven't we? Who are they? Well, the unjust, they're unbelievers. They're people who've never come to knowledge of the truth. They've never tried to come to knowledge of the truth. We should never worry thinking, well, you know, there are so many people that have never known these things. Any man who is prepared to draw nigh to God, we're told, James 4 verse 8, God will draw nigh to. So we don't, don't ever, young people, let that worry you. If there are people that want to know the gospel message and start trying to dig and find it out, they'll find it out. But he that's unjust, let him be unjust still. He that's filthy, let him be filthy still. Now this is really referring to the person who's got filthy garments on. So in other words, they've known the truth, but they've let their garments become filthy, dirty garments. They haven't washed them. And so this is talking about people who knew the truth, but have fallen away. When the Lord comes, he that's filthy, let him be filthy still. This isn't saying to us right now, well, just leave those people. If they're filthy, let them be filthy still. 
This is in the context of verse 12. I come quickly, my reward is with me to give every man according to his work. So when the Lord comes, that's it. There won't be possible for people to say, Oh Lord, 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 you know, let me go and wash my garments. Let me go and, um, let me please go and uh, do, do the things that you will ask me to do. And if I do that, please can I come into the kingdom? No. The time is up. In Revelation 10, we're given a lovely phrase that says there will be time no more. Time is up. And so him that's filthy, let him be filthy still. It makes us think, doesn't it? And then these final two, that him that's righteous, let him be righteous still. Now, obviously we're not righteous because of ourselves. How are we accounted righteous? Think of Abraham. How was Abraham accounted righteous? It was by one major characteristic, wasn't it? It was by his faith. But faith without Works. is dead, right? So the righteousness that's ours isn't because of our own righteousness. It's accounted to us. It's given to us because of our faith in these things. Do you believe this? And if you believe it, you've got to work to, in thankfulness. Not because God will ever say, well, listen, you, list, you, you watch so many classes online. I noticed that you watch 15 classes online. Well, that's terrific news. Now you've earned your way. It's, that isn't how it works, is it? But we've got to be prepared to uh, make sure that this word affects us. And it makes us want to tell other people. It makes us want to try to be better people. It makes us want to be prepared to work in the truth. That's then how we become accounted righteous. And he that's holy, let him be holy still. What's holiness about? Godliness, yeah, that's a nice idea. The, the, the holiness of the law is about separation, wasn't it? So we've got to be separate. And as we reflect right now of our time in our homes, it's one thing we are, isn't it? At the moment, we are separate. But we've got to be super careful. We don't know when the government is going to lift this lockdown that's currently taking place. And we'll have to go back and continue to do much of the things that we've already been doing. Of course, there are many people now who are still having to go about their work as normal. We're very grateful to those hard workers in the NHS and in other services that are continuing to really work hard for us but at the moment for many of us we are in our homes and there's a feeling of separation which is a good thing and we've got to make sure that we maintain that frame of mind of being separate from the world remember the people who are in the kingdom revelation 21 are those who are not caught up with the image of the beast on their thinking We've got to be separate from it. So, verse 12. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. Who comes? Jesus comes quickly. That's important, isn't it? It's a first principle that we all understand. What happens to us? What's our reward? It's not for us to go to heaven. It's for the Lord Jesus to come to earth. So the Lord Jesus says, I come quickly and my reward is with me. 
It's coming to the earth. It's not us going anywhere else. To give every man according as his work shall be. So that work is that those acts of faith that we are prepared to do. So my reward is with me. That word is really interesting in verse 12. It's not used on all that many occasions, but we ought to make a note of a few of them. Some good and some bad, because he's going to come, whether we like it or not, and his reward is with him. Well, what's our reward going to be? Make a note, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 17. Let me go there and I'll read that to you, where we read, For if I do this thing willingly, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, I have a reward. Now what's the thing he's doing willingly? Verse 16. He's preaching the gospel. So critical to me and you, the reward that he is going to have, the Apostle Paul, not if he's forced to do it, he's got to do it willingly. He's got to preach the gospel. Are you? Am I? Are we teaching, preaching to other people about the gospel message? Are we throwing out the net? You want to be a fisherman. I know you do. You want to be there. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, you want to be one of the fishers on the banks of the river. You've got to be prepared to be a disciple, a fisherman now, casting out the net, preaching the gospel message. And we've got to do it willingly. Come to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me give you another reference. 1 Corinthians 3. And verse 8, we read, Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labour. You've got to be prepared to work. So you've got to preach and you've got to work in the truth. You've got to labour. We read at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we've got to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, the labour of the Lord. It's got to be a labour of love. So we've got to preach willingly and we've got to do a labour of love if we're to receive the reward. Now let me give you some more sobering and negative rewards. Go to Acts chapter 1 where we read this word. Acts chapter 1. Look what happens to Judas. We read in verse 18. Now this man, Judas, obtained a field with the reward of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out. Judas received his reward. Let me give you just, if I may, two more. Because they're going to be interesting to us shortly. 
So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2, where we read about Balaam. Now we haven't got the time to recount the story of Balaam, but I am going to show you and take you back to the numbers record shortly to just have a look at a few echoes from that time to our own here in Revelation 22. But in 2 Peter 2, we read verse 15, which have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved, here's our word, the wages. That's the reward of unrighteousness. So Balaam loved the reward of unrighteousness. Let me give you one more. It's Balaam again. Jude, Jude verse 11. Where we, we read a warning. Woe to these people who ran greedily, verse 11, halfway through the verse, after the error of Balaam for reward. So we'll need to dig out shortly a little bit more about that. But I want you to note the error of Balaam, the man who loved the wages of unrighteousness. He's an Old Testament Judas. Remember, Judas wanted the money. He wanted the wages of unrighteousness. And he got it. He got the wages. He got the reward. We've got to make sure that we do not chase that reward. We should be chasing the reward that the Lord will give us if we're prepared to do two key things. What were they? To preach and to labour. How should we preach? Willingly. How should we labour? In love. So we've got to preach willingly. We've got to labour. We've got to work in love. If we do that, then the Lord Jesus will be delighted to give us that reward. Okay, Revelation 22, verse 13. We looked at this phrase last week in chapter 21. So just make a note, the Alpha and Omega 21 verse 6 and chapter 1 verse 8, where we read about the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord Jesus Christ, the beginning and the end. Blessed are they, verse 14, that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. So there's a blessing attached to us that do his commandments. Now the revised version gives a better translation here. So you need to make a note of this. Blessed are they that wash their robes. So do his commandments. You know, clearly, you know, it's not some awful translation. Do his commandments is entirely sound, isn't it? But Really, it's the phrase that wash their robes. So let the unclean, let the filthy be filthy still. But we've got to wash our robes. We've got to make sure that we're using the water of the word to wash us all the time. That they may have the right, really look at the margin, well, I'm not sure that the authorised version doesn't give something, but the revised version margin says the authority. So 
If we're prepared to wash our garments by the water of the word, then we'll be given the authority to the tree of life and to enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. So all the apostate systems of the earth, all the church systems that make a lie, that aren't prepared to dig out the words, the prophecy of this book, to acknowledge the truth of the scriptures, who are prepared to believe a lie. Think of Genesis chapter 3. The problem of the lie will not enter into the kingdom age. That word is used in Romans chapter 1. God gave them up. Romans 1 verse 25. He gave up the people who changed the truth of God into a lie. Who worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. We've got to make sure that we're not getting caught up with the thinking of men. That's more interested in serving man. Humanism. The creature. Theistic evolution. Evolution. Let's make certain we've got nothing to do with that. We're about people who stick to the truth of God as outlined from the beginning to the end. From Genesis to here, Revelation 22. Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the Ecclesias. Isn't this lovely that this message is of the Lord Jesus Christ? I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Isn't that such a beautiful phrase? And it's almost like the signature of the Lord Jesus as he signs off this book that he has given, it's been given to him from God to the angel, to the saints, to, 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 to John, to the saints, that we might understand what would unfold in history that every faithful believer from the first century to now, 2,000 years on, would know the unfolding of history through the Roman Empire, from the barbarians to the breaking up of the Roman system, that actually they could hold on, keep seeing visions interspersed through the book that people might know the certainty of the scriptures and now the lord jesus signs off i'm the root and the offspring of david the bright and the morning star the the, the, the lord jesus is the root he's the alpha and the omega and the offspring the lord was able to say before abraham was i am he the lord jesus christ uh, is the promises he's the offspring of david and yet He's everything that David looked for because David was aware of the plan and purpose of God far before David was born. Right from the very beginning, from the book of Genesis, that in the seed of the woman, in the Lord Jesus Christ, one would come to deal with the curse and the problem of sin. So he's the root and the offspring, of course, uh, Jesus was born of the line of David. And we read he's the bright and morning star. Well, the bright star is the morning star. The bright 
and the morning star. That is the morning star. And it speaks to us, doesn't it, of a new age, of a new time, when the sun of righteousness will arise. A, the, the morning, there'll be a new morning, a, a day without clouds, as the problems of sin are dealt with. That phrase, though, the bright and the morning star, if you look in your margin, I'm sure that it will give you a reference back to numbers. And it's interesting because we've already seen reference to a particular individual when we looked at the word reward, the word wages. Who was the man that the Old Testament character that we saw had the wages of unrighteousness? Balaam. It was Balaam. And look in your margin next to that phrase, the bright and the morning star. What have you got in your margin? This is chapter 2 verse 28 okay so Beck's got chapter 2 verse 28 which is important to us we'll, we'll look at that shortly that's uh, the blessing given to the ecclesia of Thyatira but there's also an Old Testament reference which I want us to go to which is Numbers 24 so let's just go and have a look at Numbers 24 now and just briefly do a little bit of study here to see the story around Balaam. Now, many of you will know this story well. You remember that Balak, the Moabite king, has asked Balaam to come and to curse Israel. And so Balaam comes and he's desperate for the money. He's been offered money by Balak. And so he wants to do it. And though he can't do it, he wants to keep trying. And seven times he gives a parable. And each time, much to Balak, the Moabite king's fury, Balaam ends up blessing Israel. Now, on the fourth blessing, the fourth parable, look at this, Numbers 24 and verse 17. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob. We, look, you need to have in your margin there, Numbers 20, Re Revelation 22, verse 16. This is the star out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab. The Lord Jesus Christ would deal with the curse. Now, look all the way through Numbers 22, 23, 24. We see that Balak keeps asking Balaam to curse Israel. Look, let me give you some of them. Numbers 22, verse 11. Come now, curse me then. Verse 17, I pray thee, curse me the people. Now chapter 23, verse 11. I took thee to curse mine enemies, and you've blessed them. The end of verse 13, curse me then. Then uh, chapter 23, verse 25. Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. Um, then verse 27. We see the word curse again. And then finally, 24 verse 10. I call thee to curse mine enemies. And behold, thou altogether bless them these three times. So Balak wants Balaam to curse Israel. But of course, he can't curse them. He ends up giving a blessing to Israel. But the person who was going to come and deal with the curse 
ultimately, we see in chapter 25 that Phinehas is a type of the man that will ultimately deal with the curse, who, of course, is the star out of Jacob, the scepter that rises out of Israel. He is the one that will smite through the curse, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to note something else here. Go back to chapter 22 of Numbers. Even when Balaam is wanting to curse Israel, what does he say to Balak? Verse 18. He says, look, even if you give me all the money, if Balak would give me, verse 18 of Numbers 22, his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. This is so important. Balaam cannot do less or more than what? The word of the Lord. He can't do less and he can't do more. So no matter how much Balak asks Balaam to curse, he cannot do less or more. Go to chapter 24, verse 13. If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandment or the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own mind. But what the Lord says will I speak. I'm got a choice. I can't do more or less. Now come to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Because Moses now, just a few weeks on from this, recounts to the people as they stand at the promised land. And I say they stand at the promised land, I mean they stand at the brink, don't I, of the promised land. They're stood in Moab, which is modern day Jordan. They're looking across the river of the Jordan and they can see the promised land. They can smell it. And Moses is reminding them of what happened. And he says to them, verse, Deuteronomy 4, verse 1, Now therefore hearken, O Israel, to the statutes, to the judgments which I teach you for to do them, that ye may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers gives you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God destroyed from among you. But you that did cleave to the Lord your God are alive, every one of you this day. So what happened at Baal Peor was where Balaam was, right? That was in Moab, just a few weeks before Moses says these words and it's of great importance to us because we stand on the edge of the promised land come back to revelation chapter 22 me and you are standing on the brink of this land what we see in chapter 22 verse 3 there shall be no more curse the curse the problem of sin will be dealt with. Do you want to be there? I'm desperate to be there. That I stop making the mistakes that I make so often. I stop failing. 
I stop making wrong decisions. And rather I get changed. This corruptible will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. I want to be there so much, to stand on the river as a fisherman. I want to stand and look down that river, both left and right, and see some of you. I want my family to be on that river, my wife, my children. And so today, as we stand on the brink of the land, we've got to heed these lessons. Come back, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. He that hears say, come. Isn't it lovely? The spirit and the bride. Our job is still to say to people, come. He that hears says, come. You've got it. Even if you've only just heard it, tell people to come and listen. And let him that's a thirst come. Whosoever, let him take the water of life freely. We're reminded, aren't we, that this is the free gift given to us of God. Good notes in our margin there are John chapter 7, verse 37, John chapter 4, Isaiah 55, verse 1. The freeness of the gospel message, the water of life. And so look how the Lord Jesus Christ finishes this book. Verse 18. I testify to every man that hears the words, the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add to these things... God shall add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away the words of the prophecy of this book, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. What did Balaam say to Balak? Even though you want me to curse Israel, I cannot do more or less than the word of God. And so as Moses recounts to the children of Israel, as they stand on the brink of the land, he says to them, remember what happened with Balaam. Don't add or take away from the words of the book. And so, young people particularly, let's make absolutely certain we do not fall into the traps that sadly thousands in Israel did, where they got caught up with the thinking of the Moabites. They allowed the Moabite women to come in and too many of them got caught up with them. Let's make sure that doesn't happen in our lives. We stay separate from the world. And in addition, we don't allow ourselves to be thinking more or less than the pages of this book. We can't allow that. We can't allow ourselves to be saying, well, you know, the Genesis record. Well, I'm not sure that that's what... The Lord Jesus is the Alpha, the beginning and the ending. Who are we to take away from the words of this book or to add to them? Verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That's our prayer tonight, isn't it? Even so, come Lord Jesus. As we sit in our homes, we can almost see the promised land, can't we? The signs of the times tell us that 
It's so close. We can see across the Jordan. We're desperate to be there. Our prayer is even so, come Lord Jesus. But we're just reminded, aren't we, in verse 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It's in God's grace that we stand. For all our faith, for all our works, for all our determination to hold on to the prophecy of this book, which we need to do, in the end, we keep failing, we keep messing up. And we can become so downcast by that. But we mustn't. Because we stand in the grace of God. And so the prayer is that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Make a note in your margin. Psalm 84, verse 11. Next to the word grace. Psalm 84, verse 11. Let me read you this psalm. It's a beautiful psalm of the sons of Korah. Those faithful men that were prepared to stay separate, even from their own father, who was too caught up with trying to add or to take away from the message that had been given of the law to Moses. He was trying to distract people and get them to go back to Egypt. Korah's sons stood apart from him. They stood separate. And so this lovely psalm is a kingdom psalm where they talk about the amiable tabernacles of the Lord. Verse 4, blessed are they that dwell in thy house, they will, they, will, they will be still praising thee. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee. A day, verse 10, in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. They wanted nothing to do with the tents of their father and the families of Dathan and Abiram. They wanted nothing to do with it. They stood separate. For the Lord God is a sun, verse 11, and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Yahweh of armies, Blessed is the man that trusts in thee. And so our prayer tonight is that the Lord Jesus Christ will come quickly. That no good thing will he withhold from us because we're trying to walk uprightly before him. And we're trying to trust each day in him, knowing the blessing that will come to us, the reward if we're prepared to work faithfully today in the truth. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's close our study in prayer. Almighty, all powerful Lord God, our Father in heaven, the great creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great God who in his loving kindness was prepared to find the solution to sin, to send even your only son into the world, that whosoever is prepared to believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
We know we've got to not just believe, but show our willingness to trust in you by being baptised. Help our young people listening tonight to think carefully about their walk before you, to acknowledge that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of yours is eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we long for the time when the Lord Jesus Christ will come. Our prayer is come Lord Jesus quickly. We're so desperate for that time. We're desperate for the King of Israel to return, to become the King of the world. And we know that when he comes, he will bring his reward. And Lord, we pray that our reward will not be a reward of unrighteousness. It won't be the wages of iniquity, but rather you will see in us people who've tried to cast forth the net of the gospel message to preach willingly that you'll see in us a people that have really tried to labor in love that then you'll be pleased to give the reward to us that we might be able to enter into the joys of eternity through your grace and so we long now for that time we pray that you'll look after us in our homes and our families until the Lord does come. We praise you and thank you for every good gift that you give to us each day. In the name of the King of Israel, the soon-to-be King of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, guys, so we've come to the end of the book of Revelation. But what we um, are thinking, we've had... um, a few um, people uh, listening in. In fact, I had a funny message in the week. Auntie Val, you'll like this. When the, uh, I had a message in the week that said, uh, from, from a brother in South Australia that says, uh, uh, he said something like, um, hey Pete, we're loving the MNC uh, and uh, we're delighted that Auntie Val's keeping you on your toes. So Auntie Val, you're doing a great job of keeping me on my toes, but I'm delighted you didn't ring tonight. It helped my concentration. Um, But I think that what we'd like to do, um, and I say what we'd like to do, and and I I think the young people in this area um, will be gracious enough to allow us, even though they've gone through the study of the book, to go back to the beginning. And next week, we'll have a crack at chapter one, and then we'll work our way back through the book um, to try to be a support and help to others, particularly the young people who are in their homes at the moment, uh, stuck, and have have enjoyed trying to get into uh, this book. And we know, don't we, that there's a blessing for us if we're prepared to really try to work this out. Now, uh, um, there's a few in Mulvan Ecclesia, amongst others, watching this, and I had a good chat with uh, my good pal, Dan Willey in the week, and uh, Dan said to me, he said, Pete, I think that you ought to give us a bit of homework uh, between each class. So I think that's a really good idea, that what we should do between the classes is give some homework. I'm conscious that um, for many, they're going to start watching our classes from chapter one. 
So I don't want us to kick off next week by uh, you having done your uh, homework and people, other people looking at it when they look at chapter one in future and think, what earth, what homework was I supposed to have done before I even got here? So we'll start our homework next week. But needless to say, I think it's probably a wise thing, if nothing else, before you come to the class next week, read chapter one. Even though we'll read it together, I suggest that you really do read it through carefully and ask yourself this question. Why is it that the young people in the MNC gave the title with me of the multitudinous Christ to Revelation chapter one? What is it that we're seeing there that tells us that we're given a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ with the saints right at the beginning of the book. So it's a reflection. It's not a formal homework. Formal homework will begin, God willing, next week. Mm -hmm.